Hello and welcome to the Practical Leadership Podcast, where I interview great leaders and try to extract their wisdom and experience for you to learn from and hopefully avoid making their mistakes. Check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working. Joe Owen, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. So you've worked with, what, over a hundred of the best and you say sometimes a couple of the worst organizations on the planet. You have founded eight NGOs. Okay, one wasn't enough then. All right. Eight NGOs, uh, the collective turnover of over a hundred million pounds. One of these is one of the ones that's very dear to my heart is around the education effort. 600,000 teachers and over two million students in India. Uh, that's That's quite quite impressive. You've been building and leading businesses in Japan, North America, Europe. You built a bank. You're an Accenture partner. You were the man who put the blue speckle in Daz. Now, that is something. I hope you have that in a T-shirt. The best uh, nappy... has been downhill ever since. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> the best nappy salesman, diaper salesman in Birmingham. And you gave him some highlights. Uh, the, the highlights, career highlights here. And you were sued for 12 billion with a B pounds when a billion was worth something. You got it. Oh, my goodness. And I've got one of your books here. And I was just saying there, it's, it's, a, it's a pain, I'm afraid. I'm annoyed having read uh, Smart Work, the ultimate handbook for remote and hybrid teams, because now I want to read the other 19. I'll let you. That's fine. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, give, give me some flavor of your journey. I mean, 22 years. Okay, so look, I mean, so some people have career, a noun, but for me, career has been a verb where I career from triumph to disaster and back again with tedious regularity. And it is immense fun, actually, uh, although a huge amount of effort and work. Um, and you have to learn the fine art of the hustle the whole time. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep on learning and improving the whole time because otherwise you will be redundant not as in someone firing you but just the phone will never ring and if you just yeah enjoy that enjoy that process of learning enjoy that process of discovery you won't have a career you will career through life and it will be absolutely brilliant except of course for the times when it's totally catastrophic. <laughs> that simply makes the good times even better. My goodness. How do you keep the energy up? I mean, there's you, obviously, now you must be, what, 32, 33 years old, something like that, right? Um, yeah, I'm probably having my, my third, 21st birthday or something like that. That's the one. Third time round. <laughs> this this whole, the, the, the hustle, right? So I've been out on my own for now for nearly three years and loving every damn minute of it, frankly. I love the freedom. But I also yeah. love the diversity. But the, 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 the hustle, it's not hustle culture, you know, this bro nonsense, but just keep it on, keep it on and being consistent. How do you get your energy? Where do you get that from? What, what energizes you? So look, actually, it's one of the lessons of leadership, to be honest. If you have a clear goal about, yeah, this is what I really want to do. This is what I really want to achieve. If it's something that excites you, you will do whatever it takes to get there. I mean, if your ambition is to reduce the usage of paper clips in the office, that that's fine. You know, that that's good and that's all right. But you're probably not going to get terribly excited about it, and probably nobody else is going to get excited about it. But if you're kind of like anyone else, you go through life and suddenly ideas hit you. You're not looking for them; they just come and hit you. So let me give you an example. Um, after getting bored out of the bank by accident. I was kicking my heels in San Francisco, listening to a radio station. And it interrupted the good music, Doors, Dire Straits, that dates me, with a little piece about a brilliant project which got great graduates to teach in the inner city. I knew nothing about education, but I went, that's a great idea. So I rang the radio station, said, give me the name of the project, Teach for America. So I rang uh, Wendy Cop, the Chief Executive Teach for America. I've got a fruity British accent, so I got straight through to it. British accent does help sometimes. Um, 
And I said, look, Wendy, you've got to bring this over to the UK. She said, no, I'm a bit busy. Talked to McKinsey because they interviewed me about what to do about education in London. So I rang McKinsey and said, look, I know you're doing this project. I've got the answer. We sat down and uh, coming out of that first cup of tea, we started Teach First, which is now the largest graduate recruiter in the UK. And I knew nothing about education, which is probably my advantage because I wasn't stuck by the orthodoxy of education. Okay? So those opportunities are everywhere. And I had no right to set that up. To, to set that up required, A, a great team, a brilliant team, a brilliant partner in Breckwood Talks. OK, so that's lesson number one about leadership. Yeah, don't do it yourself. Don't be a hero. Yeah, build your alliance, build your team, get your partners. Um, yeah, you're, you don't need to be the smartest people in, the person in the room. The leader does not need to be the smartest person in the room. The leader needs Some to problems, get the smartest they? people into the room. Yeah. Okay, that's your job. And and once you have this idea that we're gonna, yeah, we we have this crazy idea, we're gonna transform education by getting the very best graduates to teach in the very toughest schools. Okay, impossible, absolutely impossible. But we said we're gonna do it because we know that they can do it in America. If they, if, if, you know, if those Americans can do it, we can certainly do it. All right. Um, so. It happened. And that's where the hustle came from. That was that was hustle massively to make that happen. So once you have an idea that you really believe in, that you're really committed to, really enthusiastic about, you will find yourself quite naturally doing all the things that a leader needs to do. Of course, you'll do all the, the hustle because you have to do the hustle. You will find yourself building your team because you have to build the team. You will find yourself having the difficult conversations. You will find yourself um, not accepting no for an answer ever. Uh, you will not accept excuses and you will have those tough and difficult conversations. You will step up when other people step back. You will be a natural leader. Why? Not because you're trying to be a leader, not because you've got the genetic disposition to be a leader, not because you've been through a leadership training course. You don't need to do those things. All you need to do is have a very clear idea about this, is what I want to achieve. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to set up Teach First or something like that, which is just crazy and bonkers. It can be something as simple as, look, I'm going to make this, this team. This team, we're going to be the best, I don't know, risk management operation in the United Kingdom. Okay. We're just going to transform the way people think about risk. Brilliant. Okay. Go for it. So, whatever it is, have that idea because leadership is the art of taking people where they would not have got by themselves. Right. That sounds boring. A wonderful so, before you go to sleep, Let's repeat that and we'll look at why that's revolutionary. Leadership is about the art, the art of taking people where they would not have got by themselves. So that means leadership has nothing to do with your title. You can have a grand title such as president, prime minister, chief executive. But if you're not taking your team, your firm, your country where it would not have got by itself, by itself, you're not leading. You're simply managing a legacy. Right? If, on the other hand, you have a radical idea for how you are going to change your team, you can be towards the bottom of the organization. You're leading. You are leading. So leadership is for everyone, and it is about what you do. It is not about your title. Wonderful. There's an idea of abundance there as well. Yes. I think. Oh, oh, look, there are so many opportunities out there. Oh, yeah. So, look, I mean, I, I, I think I probably never had an idea for an NGO or a business. The ideas are just coming at you the whole time. Let me give you one simple story, an example. So a good friend of mine was reading the Times and saw a letter in the Times, very old fashioned and read it. And it was from the Saudi ambassador saying, yeah, please stop giving us such a hard time about democracy and human rights because you, you Brits, you've had a thousand years to work at it. We've had about 20 years. So just be a little bit patient. Yeah, we're on a journey. We will get there, but, you know, hold your horses. Now, you read that and you go, so, so what? You know, who cares? So my good friend 
wrote to the Saudi ambassador and said, well, that's really interesting. You know, maybe we should do something about it. Next thing he knows, he's being invited to the embassy so uh, to have tea and to talk about what might be possible. Coming out of that, about a year later, he found himself at a, a, at a reception at the British Museum where he was starting the wonderfully named University of the Desert. Isn't that great? So it, the opportunities are there the whole time. They're sort of being chucked in our faces. And actually in the pub or over dinner, whatever it is, we all have these ideas about how we're going to change the world, right? We all do. And of course, those ideas die on first contact with reality, which is called the hangover the next morning, okay? And we just forget about it. Don't forget about it. Why don't you be that stupid person like me who goes, well, actually, this is a good idea, this thing I heard on the radio. Let's see if we can chase it down. Let's just make a phone call. Make a phone call. See what happens. And then when people don't say no, you'll say, all right, I'll make another phone call. Then another one. Then another. And suddenly you find yourself this thing snowboarding. And like you just go for it. So the opportunity is all there. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need to have an original idea. They're all there already. I'm sorry. I'm ranting. But I love it. It's a bloody good rant. I say it. If that's your ranting, I should read your books. Oh, no, wait, I do. There you go. <laughs> well, you've, you've got these ideas, as you said, that they're in abundance. They're sleeting through the, the universe, bouncing off our tinfoil craniums. And if we were for but one fleeting moment to, ga to grasp them and run with them, yeah, that's how anybody does anything. I mean, you look so at look, I mean, just find a problem. So yeah, one of my books is called Global Teams. Guess what that's about, okay? So, yeah, why did I write that? Because when I was given a one-way ticket to Japan, I had to figure out how to run a team, a global team. I had no idea. So I thought, fine, I'll read the book. And then I found that there are lots of professors writing very grand books about globalization, global strategy, the global firm. But none would write about the plumbing. Mm. How do you manage a global team? Because that's a bit practical and messy. And it just frustrated me. And I kept on looking for the book, and it never came out. So I thought, well, if no one else is going to write it, I'll write it because there's a real need. And so, you know, it's, it's actually quite easy to write. You, you know, talk to lots of people and draw on your own experience, and there, there are little bits of research out there, and it all comes together. So, again, it comes back to this thing of the ideas are always there. If something frustrates you and annoys you, that's an opportunity. So that's where the bank came from. I was so annoyed that banks were ripping off small and medium-sized enterprises with rubbish service and very high fees. Isn't that a great opportunity? Isn't that a brilliant opportunity? So all you have to do is offer slightly better service and slightly lower fees and a little bit of innovation, and off you go. So every problem genuinely is an opportunity if you look at it the right way. Mm. So abundance and then mindset. M mindset is really important. Okay. So for 20 years, I've been a complete anorak about leadership. I've looked at leadership through endless different lenses, you know, globally across different industries, small to large, different sectors. I've even uh, over 20 years, spent 20 years uh, hanging out with traditional societies around the world to see how they're led, you know, tribes from Mali to Mongolia, Papua New Guinea and beyond, um, special forces, mountaineers. I've even been on board the nuclear deterrent, um, mm. see how that's run, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I try to take a very broad view now. And for the first 15 years, it was like, well, I was trying to identify the skills for leader because we can all learn the skills of leadership. That's the good news. Yeah. Good news. We can all... all like learning a piano, we may not get to play, you know, Rachmaninoff's Force at Carnegie Hall, but a little bit of practice makes us better than most people. Great. Oh, and also no leader gets ticks in all the boxes. That's the other incredibly reassuring thing. You do not need to be perfect. You just need a few signature strengths that you play on, and then you compensate for your very modest weaknesses <laughs> by building a team around you. Okay, so if you hate accounting, 
love accountants because okay. uh, they'll do it for you. So skills are good and they're important. But then I saw that quite often the very best leaders had dramatic flaws in terms of skills and in terms of humanity as well. So you go, well, there's actually something else going on. And that something else is very clearly mindset. They act differently because they think differently. Now, mindset sounds a bit fancy um, because it sounds like you've got very woolly, very. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, and, and it sounds like you've got to have your brain rewired or something. It's all you, you've got to go Frank, all Frankenstein or something to succeed. Like, let's not go there. So m- mindset is actually shorthand for habits of mind. Okay, we all have habits of mind, which by definition have been very helpful to us because that's how how we've got to where we are. They're good habits of mind. Hold on to them, but just occasionally, our habits of mind hold us back. And what you so so what I observe is the very best leaders consistently display the same habits of mind. So you know, this this was several years research went into this. The best leaders uh, exhibit the same habits of mind, and I identified seven plus one, seven positive ones, and one from the dark side. Now, when I do this talk, so. People kind of listen to the seven positive mindsets, but they're not really interested. What they want to hear is what's the mindset from the what's dark the dark side? What's the mindset? Oh, what, what's the secret? What's the truth? And I once failed to get to the dark side, and there was a riot. <laughs> we, we, we weren't like <laughs> so. Um, so I'll cut. I'll cut through the seven positive ones, and I'll give you the the dark side one. The dark side is ruthlessness. Mm. Okay. Now, every leader I've talked to says, no, no, I'm not ruthless. And that'll get them to tell a few stories. And it's like, yes, you say you're not ruthless, but you are. Okay. I ask them, do you have a hard edge? They say, oh, yes, all leaders need a hard edge. Hard edge, ruthless. Okay. The stories are terrifying. Um, now, that isn't about being some sort of crazed psychopath. It's not about being ruthless about everything all the time and being nasty to people. What it is about, it goes back to having this very clear idea, very clear mission. We are going to we are going to climb that hill. No, we're not going to go paddling in the stream there. We're not going to go for a picnic over there. We're going to climb that hill. Yes, and I know it's steep, and I know it's rocky, and I know it's icy. We're going to climb it. Okay, no excuses. Um, and once you adopt that mindset, you then make discover your 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 hard edge you will have the difficult conversations with people when you need to have them you will make the difficult decisions you will discover that popularity is the high road to weakness and to failure because when you seek popularity you will always compromise you will always find a reason oh yes well maybe that hill's a bit big or maybe it's getting a bit dark or maybe it's a bit getting a bit cold or maybe you can do it a bit later there'll always be a, a reason why you shouldn't achieve your idea and you will compromise. So the the currency of leadership is not popularity, it's trust and respect. If you can build your, your team and your alliances of trust and respect and support, then you will go far. That, that, that currency, trust and respect, massively amplifies your formal authority, which comes from your budget and your span of control. In in today's world of flat organizations, outsourced organizations, your span and control and your your budget is simply your entry ticket to the leadership race. It is not enough uh, for you to achieve what you need to achieve. You need to amplify your, your budget and span of control massively through influence influencing the broader organization and people beyond your organization you will only do that through building your alliances of trust and respect so that's the flip side of ruthlessness it isn't about being nasty to everyone all the time because then you won't build your alliances of trust and respect so it's a bit yeah it's, mm. there's a bit of a balance there but when push comes to shove you will not compromise on your mission and what you've discover 
in all organizations is a couple of things. First of all, the survival of the organization takes precedent over the survival of the individual. You'll never forget that. And ultimately, survival of the mission, achieving the mission takes priority over the individual as well. So there are some kind of tough lessons in there that the best leaders do actually take to heart, but they will be ruthless in a sort of humane way if they can. It's the decision-making capability, isn't it? So it's a decision-making based on vision, based on mission, and then doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah, so... Actually, saying what what you're going to do, doing it, and then having done it. So you picked up two critical points. First of all, decision-making. A lot of people find that very difficult. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a very clear vision, then actually decisions become very easy. You just go, yeah, does this help me achieve the mission or not? And if it's kind of unimportant, you just delegate it to somebody else. Okay, kind of simple. Um, so, so clarity of purpose, clarity of vision. Yeah, you know, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? Being really clear about that helps. Um, and and then, yeah, but build that trust. Sorry, the second point which I've now forgotten, but build the trust. Well, you, and and how do you build trust? You build trust by saying what you're going to do. Okay, so let let okay, so let's fo- focus on how do you build trust. Mm. So trust is a function of of uh three or four things let's go through goal alignment it's a lot easier to trust people who are uh fighting for the same goal as opposed to fighting the same goal and in an organization that's difficult to achieve because actually organizations are set up for conflict pause there organizations are set up for conflict right different groups have different priorities so that's where a lot of creativity is needed to square agendas and all that kind of good stuff, right? One clue is to make sure that whatever you do is really well aligned with the agenda of the chief executive, because if you're doing that, you're probably on the right path, okay, number one. Number two, not after goals alignment, social alignment. We all find it a lot easier to trust people who are like ourselves, okay? That's bad for diversity, incidentally. Um, but it's why a lot of firms talk about one firm firm. You can be any race, color, or creed as long as you all think the same way. Well, that's an interesting view of diversity, isn't it? Okay. Um, but that seeking social alignment is important. Yeah, common experiences. We've been Values. to the same conference, booths, yeah. holidays, kids, whatever it is. Yeah. Similar music. I mean, you like Pink Floyd. Great. I happen to like Pink Floyd. Brilliant. Yeah. Maybe it's an acquired taste and it dates you, but whatever, right? Mm. You find that little bit of social alignment. Second. Then third is credibility. Now, yeah, professionals will say, well, of course I do what I say. And probably they not only try to do what they say, they probably try to over-deliver on what they say. So actually the doing is never the problem with professionals. The problem with professionals is the same. Because when someone asks you to do something, you may well reply by saying something like, well, I'll look into it. I'll do my best. I'll see what's possible. Okay? You will then perhaps go out of your way to see what's possible and to look into it and all those good things. And then come back two weeks later and say, well, I, I looked into doing my best, saw what's possible. I'm sorry, it's not on. Bang. All trust gone in an instant. Hmm. And at that point, you can have the whole I said, he, you said, he meant, they didn't and blah, blah, discussion. And that just makes it worse. The problem was in the saying. You you were saying things which, like, which gave you let out clauses. I'll look into it. Right. I'll do my best. I'll see what's possible. You weren't saying you'd do it. But of course, what was being heard is. He'll deliver on Tuesday. Right. Exactly. Yep. So what that says is if you want to maintain credibility, have a difficult conversation about expectations at the start rather than an, an impossible conversation about outcomes at the end. Be really, that the point to be tough is at the start mm-hmm. of that conversation, expectations, okay? So three elements of risk, goal alignment, social alignment, and credibility, which is saying what you can do. Focus on the saying what you can do. Be really clear on that. So you've got this, um, you've built a framework 
but uh, I've seen you using RAMP. RAMP framework, relationships, autonomy, motivation, let's, and process. Let's talk about that. So yeah. that, that came out of, here's a challenge, um, which was one of the NGOs, last one. Yeah, uh, 600 million kids in school but not learning, UN challenge. Uh, everyone said the teachers are the problem. We said, no, they're not the problem. There is no solution without the teachers, so the teachers are the solution. Okay, get over it. Hmm. But the problem is they're disengaged, disenfranchised, demotivated, disempowered. So, of course, they're not delivering. Okay. So how, how do you address tens of millions of demotivated teachers? Motivation at a system level. Okay. We've been banging on about at this for 11 years, and we now think it's we found out how to make it work, and that's the ramp model. And the good news is that this is not about getting managers to be motivational and inspirational because that does not work. Uh, my research shows... I mean, my goodness, cheerleaders. We don't need any more cheerleaders. No. And it doesn't work. So in my research, I looked at this. 65% of bosses think they're good at motivation. Well, that's sort of okay. I then asked their followers, <laughs> how good are you, the bosses at motivation? Answer, 32%. Okay? So massive motivation gap. And frankly, yeah, it, it's just one more burden for managers. Be motivational. Because I cannot tell you to be positive, motivated, or happy. I can't, right? Being positive, motivated, or happy comes from within. So all the managers can do is create to create the conditions mm. in which people will rediscover their intrinsic motivation. And that's the ramp model. So if you want to get a motivated workforce at a system level or at a team level, put in these four conditions, right? One are supportive relationships, which are supportive and positive, not command and control, supportive and positive, both vertically and horizontally. So horizontally, not competitive and all beating each other up. Mm. Okay. Lots of things you can do to be to do that. And that's not about trying to be popular. It's about being supportive, right? making sure people get the right assignments, pushing them, etc., etc. Okay. Autonomy is the second one. RA for autonomy, because professionals hate to be micromanaged, mm. right? which is wonderful. So the way to manage professionals is to manage them less. Let them overachieve. Manage them less, lead them more. Okay. So um, set the direction, set them up for success, and make sure they've got the right time, resources, budget, etc., and then let go. Delegate properly. Trust them. Okay. And they will repay your trust yeah. over delivery. That requires the R for relationship to be very strong so you can trust for autonomy. Exactly. M, mastery. It's very hard to be motivated if you lack the skills for today's role and you're not building skills for tomorrow's role. So create a culture of learning and help each of your team members learn and grow in role. Support them, mentor them, supportive relationships. Okay, Support them, mentor them, coach them. Don't give them the answers. Coach them to discover the answers mm -hmm. instead, okay, for instance. And again, lots of things you can do on autonomy, lots of things you can do on mastery. Too long to do. The final one is often the most difficult, purpose. Yeah. People will go through hell and high water if they have a mission that they really believe in, you see that in the armed forces, you see it in religious groups, you see it in mountaineers, you see it in all sorts of areas. Okay? Much harder if you're doing reconciliations in the finance function. You know, what's your sense of purpose? So purpose really comes from three levels. Okay? One is the organization, you know, armed forces, religious groups, NGOs, and sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that's simply uh, an excuse for very bad management. Oh, you've got the purpose, so we don't need to manage you well. So that, that's a bit of a disaster. So yeah, that's what organization is one level. Uh, the, the bottom level is individual purpose. Mm -hmm. That's the whole job crafting thing, where you discover purpose in what you do. Okay? There's a whole literature on that we can come back to. The most interesting level is in the middle. It's from the leader. The leader of a team can often create a real sense of purpose in, in that team. 
by creating a sense of mission for that team. You know, we are we are going to be the best reconciliations team this country has ever seen. We're going to change the way reconciliations is done forever. I don't, I don't, whatever it is, okay. But creating that sense of purpose and excitement within the team can be incredibly exciting. So purpose comes from levels, organization, leader, and the individual. Uh, and you've kind of got to work work all three levels if you really want to do it. So if you have a have an organization or you have a team where there are supportive relationships, positive relationships, where the team has high autonomy and agency, where they've got the skills and they're building new skills and they've got a real sense of purpose, the chances are it's going to be a very motivated team. That's why you don't demotivate them a little bit. And not only are they going to be very motivated, they're going to be performing well, and you're going to find a lot of the mental health issues, which are now epidemic levels nationally, are going to melt away, most of them, okay? Um, because when you're motivated, then a, a, a lot of that other stuff just disappears. And you find, you, you're saying 11 years in, we think we've found this is a solution now for the uh, hundreds of millions of demotivated teachers around the world. So, so okay so we're, we're currently doing this with about uh we're up to the millions uh 20 million uh kids and about one or two million teachers i'm sorry i should have the numbers and endless officials hundreds of thousands of officials because you've got to do it at a system level you can't just do just the teachers or just the kids or just the officials everyone in that system needs to be uh, equally aligned because if you have just supportive relationships between two people and the rest of the organization is totally uh, toxic you've got a problem okay so it has to be at all levels so it's taken us about 11 years to figure out how to do it at this system level and we're now beginning to grow we're only at 20 million kids we're now beginning beginning to grow at 20 million and uh yeah we, we'll want to get to the six 600 million as fast as possible and of course we're going to learn more and more as we go but the exciting thing is this is system level in motivation it takes the burden off the individual manager to be motivational they have to and it gives them a suite of very specific tools and techniques that they can just apply to create the conditions in which people rediscover their intrinsic motivation so it basically blows out blows apart the whole motivation industry, which is all about being, how do I motivate you? And that is fundamentally the wrong question. And it doesn't matter how good the answer is, the best answer to the wrong question is still wrong. And we're simply asking, instead of asking, how do I motivate you? Wrong question. We ask, how how can I get you to rediscover your intrinsic motivation? That's a completely different question. And a lot because of you, you professionals are motivated. You simply have to help them rediscover it. A lot of it, a lot of this, I think, is just getting out of people's way. Yeah. Oh, oh, a huge. Well, that's whole autonomy gig. Yeah. Yeah. Stop micromanaging, and that's why the hybrid work revolution is brilliant. The hybrid work revolution. Everyone thinks it's about what's going to happen to offices and the local coffee shop. Well, that's kind of marginally interesting. Mm. The real interest is that the hybrid work revolution is a revolution in leadership, totally. which is happening. You have to be a really good leader to actually manage in a hybrid environment. Yeah. You can be lazy in the office. Well, what we've discovered in the office is two things about uh, uh, leadership in the office. One, the office is very forgiving of mediocre management. Because if you make a mistake in the office, you know about it in real time and you can Mm. manage it in real time. It's fine. It's all very ad hoc. You make a mistake, you miscommunicate on a hybrid team. Mm. It festers. It festers. It all blows up, and oh. it's a nightmare. Okay, I'm sitting in my own head replaying the conversation that I did or didn't have, but I can't remember, but maybe I did. But that's the one, oh, my goodness, he hates me or whatever, and somebody somewhere basically garbled a message. Exactly. And, and yeah, this small problem becomes a massive crisis. Yeah. It? So, so all leaders are now having to up their skills level. All, all the basic disciplines of goal setting, communication, delegation, you've simply got to be more purposeful and more deliberate about everything you do, and you've got to be better at it. And that's wonderful news if hybrid work is forcing people to raise their skills levels. The second uh, bit of the rev- hybrid uh, 
work revolution, hybrid leadership revolution, is that we've discovered that the office was a paradise for control freaks. Because <laughs> yes. they could oh, walk yes. across the office and interfere. I mean, sorry, help. 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 At will. Help. Yep. So not interfere. <laughs> right. In the hybrid world, you can't no. interfere at will. And you don't even know what your team is doing. You don't know if your team is actually practicing the banjo at home. You have to hope that they're doing the right thing and making the right decisions while while you're not watching them. That is a nightmare for control freaks because mm. they're having to learn trust, to trust their team and to delegate properly to their team. Isn't that a wonderful, mm. wonderful But Joe, I don't, I don't know if they're wearing the pyjamas or not. I can't tell. I exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, it's the thing. You know, so if, if, if in a year's time, millions of people are, are playing the banjo really well, we'll know the hybrid we'll know. Work revolution has gone. There's a two-sided bit there. It's autonomy and accountability. And yeah. you've, because we're all now suddenly highly autonomous, yeah. we have to be highly accountable. As a leader, I have to set and hold you strictly accountable. And as an individual contributor, I have to actually admit that I need to be held accountable and I need to be accountable for my autonomy. So let, 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 let's plumb that up one out because that is um, a really interesting side of, of uh, the hybrid work revolution and of the ramp model autonomy. Mm. So auto increased autonomy goes with increased accountability. You cannot avoid it. Professionals like the autonomy bit. Mm -hmm. They kind of get a bit antsy about the accountability bit because it's like, hang on, you're going to start judging, uh, judging me. I don't really like that, you know. It's output. But, you know, you've got to deliver yeah, if something. You, if, if you're a you've got autonomy now, you're accountable for the outcomes. So how do you square off autonomy and accountability as a leader? There's a third A, ambiguity. Okay. Oh yeah. Mm. So professionals want autonomy, don't like accountability, but they even more dislike ambiguity. Because if my goals are ambiguous, suddenly I'm going to be anxious about them. I'm going to have to do lots of extra work to cover all the different options. I'm, go I'm going to be going crazy. So as a leader, what you do is you have a conversation with them where you say, look, let's drive out all this ambiguity. This is what I call the success conversation which actually both the team leader and the team member should want. It's like, how do we, the key question is, how do we set this up for success? How do we set this up for success? And you go through all the questions about, yeah, budget, resources, timing, reporting, the what ifs, yeah, what support do I need? What are the obstacles going to be? Where can it go wrong? What, how does this sit with my other priorities? But it's all about how do we ensure that this succeeds before we even start? And that isn't one conversation. That is not one conversation. What Again, what we found in the office that it is a goal-setting conversation. What we find is that that happens in an ad hoc way as a whole series of conversations. Okay, It's a kind of process of discovery because you suddenly go, well, hang on. You said you wanted this, but does that really tie in with that priority over there? And how does that work? Highly iterative, highly iterative. It is highly iterative. So in the hybrid world, you have to, in a sense, recreate that journey of discovery. The mistake bosses make is they think that they can simply download the goal all in one conversation. You can't. You've got to keep on coming back to it and revisiting it. But the goal is, how do I set this up for success? And actually, once both you and the team member have identified how to set it up for success. There are two possible outcomes, actually. One is that as a boss, you will go, hang on, I'm now looking at what it's going to take to make this succeed. And maybe I need to think about changing what we achieve, what we're going for. Okay, that's one possible outcome. But if you both agree, yeah, that is the right goal. We now know how, how it's going to work and we've got it set up for success. You've got that accountability 100% nailed. Because now it's crystal clear. Yeah. And actually, both sides will be very comfortable with it. You won't have to talk about, oh, you're now accountable. It's not. No, both sides go, right, I know I know what we need to do. I know how, that, how it's going to work. We're set up for success. So let's just go for it. Expectations but, set and met. Yeah. To so have the success conversation. Success and remember, accountability. Yeah. So it's autonomy, accountability, ambiguity.
Very nice. Very nice. Religion. Just before we wrap up then, you wrote a lovely article a few days ago now um, about Mr. Musk at Twitter, Tesla, SpaceX, etc. And I was wondering, because there's some fabulous comments there, and I'll link to it in the in the notes of this of this episode. Is Musk, Mr. Musk, President Musk, perhaps by now, by the time you're listening to this, who knows? Um, is Musk, is it Even a feature? To Mars, maybe, by the time he gets there. There we go, he's off to Mars. I don't know, do you think, you know, how could you resist, if you owned the rocket ship that was going to Mars, how could you resist not taking a seat on it? My goodness, you might have to lose some weight, but why not? Is, is it a feature or a bug? Highly effective leadership. Is, there a, is it a feature or a bug being a bit of an ass? being hard work, being like that. You look at some of the greatest leaders out there, everything from the, the Welshes to the Churchills to Trump to all these guys, and some of them are highly, highly effective, but you wouldn't want them dating your daughter. Feature or bug? Look, I, I, I think it's a, a, actually a feature, which is difficult because when we talk about good leadership, people get very confused. They confuse two different things. They confuse good as in effective, and good as in a wonderful human being. Morally good. Moral good, kind good, all that mm. kind of good stuff. But what you find is that the very best leaders are, uh, well, some of them are just ambitious for themselves, but quite a lot of them are ambitious for a very clear mission, idea, whatever it is. And it goes back to the ruthlessness thing. They get totally obsessed about it, totally obsessed, and they will not let anything stand in their way because they realize the mission comes actually it often comes before even their own personal lives i mean musk uh, uh, uh you know musk's personal life is you know by repute disaster. a little bit of a disaster yeah. so um so he, he's even putting his own personal life uh behind the mission that he he chooses and i think all the best leaders that i've come up come across they, they can be charming and nice people but they're not people I'd like to disappoint, ever. Yeah, ever. Uh -huh. Yeah, they're sort of uncomfortable people to be with. So, look, I'd I'd like you know great leaders to be not just effective, but to be nice and wonderful and warm and cuddly people as well. Um, and I think in the foothills of leadership, you you will find people who can square the circle. Right, who can be both effective and, and nice, but once it comes to the really big, humongous missions, big beasts, the big beasts, then you find that yes, that there is a dark side. And just to give you one story. I mean, a lot of people lionize Winston Churchill. Okay, um, well, actually, he's interesting. He he was a depressive and a drunk and had all, all sorts of other problems. A dark dog, um, a black dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah, black dog days, dark dog days. Um, when when the first batch of penicillin reached Egypt, the generals didn't know what to do about it. It was a miracle drug, but they didn't have much of it. And they had a choice. They could either uh, use a small amount of penicillin on all the soldiers who'd been fooling around in the pleasure palaces of Cairo and Alexandria and get them back to the front, right? That, that's one, one option. Or option two, they could use a lot more penicillin on each of the sort of wounded war heroes but knowing that it wouldn't always work and someone would die anyway, and someone would have survived anyway. So much more of a lottery in a sense. So they cable back to Churchill, you know, what should we do? And the advice came back instantly. Use it for best military advantage. In other words, yeah. give it to the soldiers who have been fooling around, not to the wounded, wounded war heroes, yeah. which is a kind of brutal, brutal decision. Yeah. And a lot of wounded people died as a result, who could probably have been saved. But he was very clear. Actually, we have to win the war. That's the most, yeah, everything else is secondary. We have to win the war. So it's kind of, yeah, those are the, sometimes the really nasty. Now, and we people can debate, was that the right decision? Was it the wrong decision? I leave, leave that to people to debate. All I'm saying is that when you, or all leaders will face some very, very difficult decisions from time to time. And you have to face up to them. Yeah. And, and the best leaders often will be 
the ones who who will make the difficult and uncomfortable and controversial decision because that is how the mission will be achieved. You look back at many of these decisions, I mean, that one in particular, for example, we can talk about that until the end of time. Is it, do the ends justify the means or do they not? And what's the circumstance and all this sort of stuff. But we look at it and we make judgments about it from the outside with the benefits of hindsight with, the, oh, well, he was a terrible person. She did this. He did that. I would have done differently. And, and a lot of the time, you don't know. If you were in there in the moment, I would hope you would, I would have the moral courage to make what was the big difficult decisions? Because they're just men and women like us. You know, they put their trousers on the same way. Exactly. And I think what we've touched on is one of the great mistakes we all make uh, as managers and as human beings. When we look at uh, leaders, sometimes our own bosses, um, we're very quick to judge them. You know, that boss is a good boss, boss because she's nice to me. That boss is a terrible boss because he's nasty to me. Okay. So we judge them. Or that, that boss is terrible because he's just you know, a nasty person or whatever. Stop judging. Just stop judging because you're not going to learn anything. Mm. I, I've worked with some horrible bosses who I've, I've really loathed. But then you have to ask, well, how come he or she is the boss and I'm not? Right? Maybe they are doing something which works. Learn from it. So step one, stop judging. Start understanding understand what is their success formula you, you may not want to copy it because it may be a toxic one but there will be some things where you can learn positively even from the, the worst bosses so start understanding start learning and that's the road to progress if you simply go in for judgment straight away you that's very that. nice. Yeah, over the water cooler, you can all commiserate with yourself or whatever. That's great, but you're not actually progressing. Mm. So like, understand first, judge later. It's like organizational cancel culture. You know, oh, I, I, I can't, I can't possibly even ask questions about that because it's not even the thing. I, it's not right. So I, I'm judging about it before I have the beginning of understanding. Exactly. First, first understand. And actually, you know, when you understand, then you, yeah. again, it is just interesting in that Churchill case. What what would you really do? Um, what would you do? Well, I mean, number it, one thing you would really do is hope you wouldn't didn't have to be in the position to, to make the decision. Yeah, yeah, because, because you're deciding on people's lives and deaths yeah. right there. There you are, right there. Yeah. Well. My goodness, uh, it's been a, a, a fairly wide ranging conversation, Joe. Yeah. Could I ask, what is the author reading right now? Look, that's an interesting question. Let me tell you what I'm not reading. Go on. I'm not reading leadership books for two reasons. First, I want to avoid plagiarism because if I haven't read them, I can't plagiarize them. Second, I don't want to caught, get caught in conventional thinking. I think you know, I, I owe it to my readers to to try and be original and and practical. Okay, so. Um, but everything I read is about trying to improve my understanding of leadership. It's just I look at it in a slightly different lens. So I seek inspiration elsewhere. So the two, th two things I'm reading at the moment, one is I'm going back to uh, my textbook on neuroscience. I did a course on neuroscience at Harvard because I think that's really important when we're getting into lots of mindset and and. Uh, resilience things that, that there is a science there that you need to understand so that's just to me really really fascinating the other one i'm reading again from a leadership perspective is the tale of two cities and just you know what can you learn from that so um yeah it, it's it's all about reading with purpose not just for pleasure and if I'm a complete leadership anorak. So everything I see and do, I see and do through the lens of leadership. So when I go to these tribes, yeah, I'm not there to help them and be nice to them. I'm not going to take pictures. I'm going to see how they led, how they organized, how do they survive and succeed. When I go onto the nuclear submarine, I'm not interested in the nuclear warheads. I'm like, how is this thing bloody well led, <laughs> et cetera. And, that, and it's great. 
it's a wonderful it's, that's my little window on reality we all have different oh. windows on reality that's mine and i love it so dickens the the, the messages of dickens he's my i think one of my favorite authors dickens and terry pratchett and they're very very similar um and i'd be i would be very interested to see in your next work if there are echoes of uh the trials and tribulations of and i'm trying to remember the two characters because i was looking for the book right now because i was well what what tends to happen is that i it, it often takes me about six months to a year to figure out what the lessons are. Mm. When I'm reading it, it just doesn't make any sense. Or, or when I'm going to a tribe, it doesn't make sense. And then six, eight months later, I'll suddenly go, oh, hang on. That's what it was. A- oh, yeah. That's what it's about. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I think Tale of Two Cities is a lot about change and resilience and purpose, actually. that That's what's really coming out of it for me at the moment. Big on purpose. Um, Big on purpose. Yeah, on purpose. Yeah. I think Especially if everyone at the end, uh, <laughs> uh, no spoilers. Yeah, exactly. Just I think if we ever wanted to do anything on duty, we should go after uh, Sullivan, Gilbert and Sullivan. That'd be a good one to do. The leadership left for Gilbert, 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 Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan is is wonderful for many things. I mean, talk you know, antidote to stuffy uh, stuffy uh, uh, Victorians. He absolutely had it in for the the establishment and, and the right. aristocracy. So, so he was the sort of Banksy of of the Victorian era. That, because Banksy, you know, sticks a finger at uh, all the uh, art establishment, and the art establishment loves it. And Gilbert and Sullivan sticking a finger to the Victorian establishment, and they loved it. It's oh, it's well. kind of weird, weird dynamic. Marvelous, uh, Joe. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Oh, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. Your homework is to leave your five-star review and please, any comments you have, you really help me to improve every day. And it also helps people to discover me online. You should check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working.